Hello, and welcome to another episode of Alec Mappa Hot Mess with Matthew Dempsey, psychotherapist. I'm Alec Mappa. I'm an actor and comedian. I live in Hollywood, and there's all kinds of things wrong with me. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get to that in a little bit. I'm Matthew Dempsey, and I'm a psychotherapist and multicultural counselor, and here to keep things sane. Hi, big boy. (laughs) Hello. Uh, Who's your big boy? You are. So, uh... (laughs) I, you know, I, um, I talked about my sex and love addiction on Twitter and somebody, uh, some, uh, somebody tweeted back that he has an SAA group that wants to now tune into the show. And I, I feel like I, I talk about it a lot because I really wanted to take the stigma out of it. Mm -hmm. talking about addiction, talking about mental health, because I feel like I suffered for years because I was embarrassed Yeah, and I, I felt really ashamed about it. And, and, and in talking about it, it's kind of like, it's just taking the sting out of it. I, I don't want anybody to suffer in silence is what I'm saying. What was the shame for you earlier? What was the, the belief that you had about it? Um, well, first of all, before I knew what it was, I thought that I was the only one who did this. Yeah. Who obsessed on people, who got addicted to people. Right. Who was, um, I was really out of integrity with myself a lot. Uh-huh. What did, it feel, what did it feel like it meant about you? What was the story you were telling yourself about the fact that you struggled in this very specific way with sex and love addiction? Um, that there was no other way for me, that this is just the way things were supposed to be for somebody like me. Uh-huh. Do you know what I mean? For somebody who looked like me, talked like me, this is really the best I can do. That uh, this okay. is, other people can have um, uh, healthy relationships and everything, and that's just not something I'm... I, I've, I, that's not my record. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, like that, yeah. it's not, that it's just not, it's just not like not, uh, it's not going to be your path. You're not going to have access to it. Um, but it sounds like also that there's obviously this kind of like bullshit negative meaning that you can make about it as is the case for what shame does for us. Mm-hmm. That says something like, you know, I'm broken or there's something wrong with me. Yes. And, and that's why I'm not going to be able to do this. Yes. There's something wrong with me. Um, this is the best I can do. This is what I deserve. That's yeah. what I felt. This is, yeah. this is, this is what I deserve. And until I went to SAA or back then it was called CODA, Codependence Anonymous. And yeah. I heard other people going through the same thing. When you hear, when you hear other people speak about things, you, you, you all of a sudden you have objectivity. You're like, well, you, well, you know what your problem is. <laughs> you know, you have no self worth, and now that's you why you're seeking right. self worth in these relationships. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, 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 and it was like, I think around 25, 26 is when I really started to like do the work, and that's why the show is called Hot Mess because when yeah. you decide to get better, it's a hot mess. You have to face all the things that you don't want to look at. Yes, including the beliefs that you had for yourself about the very specific struggles that you're going through, right? Mm-hmm. So these are two separate things. Right. There, are, there are the you know the sticking points for us in life, or the struggles that we have, especially emotionally. And then there's also the meaning that we attach, the judgments that get attached to that too, right? And so it sounds like you know, especially when you had a little bit more objectivity, you know, yeah. getting to see other people who were struggling in the same way, it gave a little bit more perspective, so that you didn't see everybody else's. That's what my broken. therapist is asking me all the time. What was the feeling? You know, right. And it's like, it's not, you know, feelings are feelings. They're not facts, but it's the thoughts that you attach to. The yes. Feelings. 
exactly down the spiral you know the 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 doom scroll in your head (laughs) the doom scroll in your head for sure no it, it is what spirals you because again it's not the feelings it's the meaning that we attach to it the thinking that gets attached to it Mm -hmm. and so this is why it's really important for us to be aware of what the stories are that we tell ourselves about the difficult emotional journey because that's what makes or breaks Uh, our ability to be able to manage some of this stuff. It's kind of like the difference between, um, you know, when we're judging what we're feeling, it's what turns sadness into depression, right? Because it's just kind of like, I'm sad. I shouldn't be sad. I don't understand. So obviously I'm broken. There's no real reason I should be happy. Now I feel broken and depressed. The judgment about the feeling is what leads to depression. The judgment about very normal, healthy emotions that we have is what turns things like sadness into depression and stress into anxiety. It's Mm. what adds a level of judgment that has us spin and spiral and then demotivates us. Because that turns into, I'm bad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that there's something wrong with me. I'm broken. I should I shouldn't be sad. That doesn't make sense. Now I feel broken or I shouldn't be too stressed. Everything is fine. So now I'm anxious. Right. I'm not. It's that kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) And this is. And this is something that we call cognitive reframing. Yeah. It's that's how my, we- that's that's my mental health narrative. That's my <laughs> affirmation that I can stand behind. I'm not so bad. But I wanted to bring up is that the difficult emotional journey is why I'm here. Right. That is awful as that was. Yes. As dreadful as that was. How I would never want to go through it again. Yeah. Because I really did crack up. I did. I did crack up. And I. But when I cracked up, it was like. I had to crack up because it was like, that's what gave me the foundation, mm-hmm. the ethos that mm-hmm. I have now. Yeah. The yeah. self-worth, the, 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 the ongoing feelings of self-worth that I'm working on now or is always based on that time. Yeah, for sure. You know? and, for sure. And, and, and like, I always, I always find myself going back to like, oh, this is why that's this, that's this. You totally. know what I mean? It's like, I, yeah, yeah. Well, the way, and the way that you just put a positive spin on it, right? It's in no way to minimize the experience of it or try to shut it down um, at all. But it's to be able to look at it from a different angle and rewrite the narrative that we tell ourselves about it. So right. even though it sucked and it was unfair or challenging or whatever it was, there's also this opportunity of how it opened up these other parts of yourself, maybe creatively or professionally or the mm-hmm. ways that you're able to love those things. So be able to put a spin on that, like kind of my example, I know I've talked about this a few times. But my example of this is like, and most recently is this fucking pandemic, which I'm over and I'm sure everybody else is too, but I'm over it just in general. It's been so challenging and my shit has been getting stirred up. I've been mm. feeling, I've been feeling kind of more down blue even depressed at times. I feel really disconnected because I've been so isolated, oh. not seeing anybody, even a bunch of my own friends. I haven't been seeing as much for safety right. reasons. Right. So there's all of this and I've just been feeling really down and I keep telling myself cause I'm a, you know, I'm a clinician, so I know how to do right. this, but right, it right. still is hard where I'm like, okay, <laughs> All right, this is like going to the emotional gym where we're getting stronger. This pain is us getting stronger, talking to myself. This pain is an opportunity for me to really ride out whatever I'm feeling and to know that it's okay and that I'm not broken. And that's what I keep telling myself. I also keep telling myself I can't wait to feel how strong I'm getting through all of this because I'm not feeling it right now. (laughs) But but that's how to reframe it. That's how we reframe this difficult emotion. I mean, that's the thing is like, I'm so strong. You know, I think yeah. like my father was horribly, you know, 
you know, uh, uh, mean to me growing up because he wanted to, me to be strong. He yeah. saw my my uh, my uh, my gentleness as weakness, my vulnerability mm-hmm. as weakness, and I wasn't going to be strong enough to make it. And years later, well, I remember having a conversation going, you know, you have no idea how strong I am. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and, and it's all because, you know, so that's that's helped me forgive him. Yeah. He gave me a lot of gifts and the, and the, and the stressful times in my life gave me a lot of gifts. One quick thing before we bring on our guests. Yeah. Um, sad, sad, sad. Here's Ben de la Creme. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what does sad Matthew look like? That breaks my heart a little bit. What, what is that? What does that look sad, like, baby? Oh, um, sad Matthew, I would say, mm-hmm. is just like I sink into the couch mm-hmm. and I probably do a, way too much scrolling on social media. I, because I look for anything like memes or videos or anything that just makes yes. me crack up. That yes. brings me a little spark of joy, yes. but it's like really just kind of, you know, sometimes, you know, I kind of do a deep dive on some uh, emotional eating, mm. um, <laughs> binge a lot of ice cream. Me too. Um, that ice also, cream is lactose intolerant. I'll put my hands. <laughs> but what, <laughs> but what I tend to do is, um, I actually kind of isolate and detach even more, which Mm. is counterintuitive to what I know I need to be helpful for me. So I have to make the active efforts to not do that. But kind of like my baggage, my shit tends to look like I have to be the one to have the answers. I have to be the one who's like strong. I have to be the one who kind of knows how to navigate all the bullshit. Oh, just because you're a therapist? I'm a ther- I mean, it's it's that whole kind of, you know, that, that bullshit uh, story that I tell myself. So when I'm not paying attention to it, I isolate more and I detach more. And then I just kind of sink even more into this just kind of like feeling of just like, bleh. So I have to, re- so I have to really make the effort to uh, keep showing up. Oh, so I have a, I have a, a, a drunk story. I really don't come off really well in it, but it's, it's <laughs> who I am. Um, uh, I think right before, I think right before the election, I was so, so stressed out and just kind of like, so me and a friend were, uh, who's in my group bubble. We only see her. Yes, yeah, your pod. Yeah, we we tied one on one night and we went a little too far. We just <laughs> went a little too far. And my husband. Like how long ago was this? Uh, maybe a month ago. My okay. husband woke up to me on the couch, <laughs> calling for him, going, Jamie. <laughs> and then had to walk me to bed. And I was repeating over and over again, nobody loves me. Oh, Alec. <laughs> I love you, Alec. I love you. Which I used to say when I was a little kid. Yeah. Like, I used to, my parents used to tease me because I'd walk around going, nobody loves me. Oh. But it's like, and I had to talk about, you know, that to my therapist. I'm like, am I really that person still? Because I don't think I am. He goes, no, yeah. you were drunk. Just get over it. It was like, you were drunk. It totally. was the alcohol. But that, but that's the thing too. Thank you for sharing that, by the way. That's so like <laughs> sweet and endearing. And I can nobody see every single part that. of it. I can I see every part of it. I don't really feel that way, but there are times where everybody feels loveless. No, but, I but I think, but I, I actually kind of appreciate that you sharing that because I do think that everybody feels some version of that. The more that we can check in on this bullshit, right? The more that we can check in on our shame and the negative stories that we tell ourselves, the more we can recognize there's always going to be some part of that. Our our greatest hope is that we can make that really, really small, right? Like that we yeah. can get it really insignificant, but also still make sure that we can be real about it when it when it comes up so we can manage it. I, uh, yeah, I was, yeah, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> I'm embarrassed now, but, but I, it's like, <laughs> 
What's embarrassing about it? Well, you know, listen, we did the show to prove that we're living proof you can't die of embarrassment. Exactly. Yes, that I could have like a, 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 a thought in my head and say out loud and, and the, the patheticness of that. I'm embarrassed. Totally. By. Well, I would say it's not embarrassment. It's shame. And as Brene Brown says, that shame is like a fungus and that it can only thrive in the darkness and it can only be killed in the light. So the fact that you're bringing it to this show in this moment helps you manage shame. So bravo, lady. In a circle light, it can't get more public than that. <laughs> Speaking of fungus, let's bring on our first guest. <laughs> yeah, so we're really looking forward to talking to our next so guest. So excited. So excited. She, and we're actually going to have a little bit of conversation around mm -hmm. pronouns about but this. First but first, the pronoun she. For now, she has been performing as a drag queen for 18 years. You may know her from her appearances on two seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race, course after being crowned as Miss Congeniality on season six she returned to compete on the third season on RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars. She performed multiple solo shows around the world and she recently wrote directed and starred in her first feature film oh. the Jinx and Della Holiday special which is now on Hulu it's going to be there all year if you haven't seen it please watch it we are thrilled to have you here with us today please welcome Ben De La Creme. Dela. Dela. Hello. Hello. Hi there. Thanks so much for having me. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you for welcome, welcome. Okay, I, I, I'm going to fangirl for a second about the. Um, <laughs> first of all, I'm. I was so impressed with you as a, as a, as a uh, director because it's it's a really wonderful movie. Um, the Jinx and Dela holiday special. Jinx Monsoon and Dela have a holiday special, and it's really about. I mean, they're singing and dancing and holiday and candy canes, and but it's really about how we're so attached to life being a certain way, that things to be a certain way, that we forget to look at things as they really are. I am so happy to hear you say that, like right out of the gate. You know, one of yeah. the really amazing things about making this thing, you know, because I really like to put a lot of sugar on top of something, right? It's like, it's that thing where it's like for kids, they like mash the peas into the French fries or whatever, <laughs> right? Like, I really like that thing where you just camp it so hard mm -hmm. with like a message underneath and like, it's sort of the thing where it's like, here's a bunch of sugar. And if you want this other thing, it's there too. If but I'm really happy that so many people- My rule as a writer is it has to be earned. You can't- yeah. With your message, you got to pilot with fart jokes and <laughs> exactly. Yeah. A lot of dick jokes. And then you can like sucker punch yes. them at the end. But I'm so glad that it that that like that that resonated with you. That makes me really, really happy. Well, it's interesting with you as a performer, because that's how I met you is I met you in Provincetown in Family Week and right before you were on Drag Race. And you said sugar, you like to put sugar on anything. You were so great with all the kids. My son was seven years old at the time and you posed with him and a bunch of the family week kids and, oh. and you were like a Disney princess walking <laughs> You know, that's so much okay. of how I, I mean, you're just touching on a lot of things that really <laughs> resonate with kind of like how I like to think about stuff. But it really, you know, I mean, to, to touch on that, it's like getting to be in environments where you can connect with kids. I mean, I, as a youth, needed to see more people like me so mm. badly that it's really amazing. And of course, not all the kids I'm connecting with are queer, but some of them are. I think that's really feels really meaningful for me. But in general, you know, I think drag is really about a message that like you get to create your own life. And I think most kids need to hear that. 
Yeah, totally. And especially, well, on the topic of creating whatever kind of identities, you know, feel right for us. I am kind of curious, right? Because uh, I know sometimes your pronouns might change. Can you help us clarify that a little bit? Pronouns, go. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Um, Well, in drag, I go by she. Uh, Day to day, I go by he. But as a general kind of, it's like, you know, the question is always, what do we revert to? And I just go as the blanket she. It's like kind of drag culture. I identify as like a male in my day to day life. Yeah. But that's the simple answer is like, she is a good shorthand for drag queens. And I know it can be like a little confusing. So I just always like to clear it up. Got it. So she, so because you're not in drag right now, but she still is. Is the yeah, right because one. everybody at home is like imagining me as like <laughs> statuesque yes. and beautiful yes. with my deep baritone. Yeah. <laughs> yes, she is. So let's talk about you were the first person, one of the first people on Dragways to really kind of openly talk about depression mm. and 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 grieving. Um, and that's what this show is all about. Yes. So uh, let's let's unpack a little bit and and tell us about your upbringing in Connecticut. Yeah, you know, um, I was a really kind of uh, isolated kid. Um, I grew up very close with my mother. Surprise, yeah. surprise. And um, <laughs> uh, the the universal gay narrative. But, yes. Um, I, uh, I grew up very close to my mother. She was an artist and she really influenced a lot of of how I developed very early. Uh, My dad and I were less close. I mean, there was nothing bad about my dad, but it was sort of, you know, we were like both like, oh, okay, we have a mutual friend and my mom more than anything. And so um, she passed away when I was, well, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit because I was just also a super queer little kid. And it was like obvious, like my parents, like Apparently, when I was like seven, they started having conversations about yeah. like, oh, okay, what what are we gonna do? Like this? how? Like what was what was really super yeah. queer about you? I mean, I it just always heel at Thanksgiving. What's that? It was a stripper heel at Thanksgiving. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, not far off, right? Yeah. Like I like I just always really um, had a performative feminine flair that came yeah. really natural. You know, mm-hmm. it was. It was never me. I wasn't even aware of it. So I wasn't really putting anything on. But I yeah. um, but I loved, loved, loved all of the, you know, sort of feminine, female, powerful archetypes that I saw on TV and in, mm-hmm. in films. And that really influenced just how I moved, how I spoke. And it always did since before I was aware of that. Um, and... So, and I just always was very artsy and I liked to express that in my mode of dress and everything else, you know, and my mom let me pick my clothes as a kid, which is like generally not the greatest idea for anyone. (laughs) um, So my mom passed away when I uh, was 13, which is of course Mm. right around when I was figuring out that I was a queer kid, that all the kids who had been calling me faggot were actually right. And, um... So when she died, I really lost my support system. I was living in a um, a small town in Connecticut, mm. uh, sort of, uh, you know, and it's that weird, it's that mix of conservative and like faux liberal that you see a lot in Connecticut mm. or you yeah. know, in New England. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so there weren't many people like backing me up and the kids at school just thought I was like super weird and I got sort of bullied a lot and beat up eventually once I was, you know, sort of at high school age when, Oof. you know, kids suddenly feel permission to punch each other. Um, and, uh, and it was just rough. I mean, I was deeply grieving for my mom. Mm. She was like sort of the one voice in my life that said, 
I was okay. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. My okay. dad wanted to be there for me, but he was so in the throes of grieving that right. there was uh, a lot of emotional caretaking from the kid to the adult, you know? It parentified you. Oh. Yeah. So, yeah. You, so, you are, so you left having, or find yourself having to care for your own dad then. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Was it just you? Do you have any other siblings or? Just me. So it was Oh, so that's a lot. Yeah, and we're like, you know, we're living, I grew up in like this old dilapidated farmhouse in the middle of the woods in Connecticut. Like a oh, wow. neighbor was a mile away. So it was very oh, isolated. Oh, see, you, said, you said Connecticut. So I went to like ordinary people. I went to Mary Tyler Moore and Tim Hutton. Yeah, like you know, suburbia. It's, yeah. yeah, it's like we lived in a town uh, that was very, it was like Stepford Wives at the center. And mm -hmm. then it sort of expanded into like the woods. And so we lived at the outskirts. And so I was, had this like isolated, haunted, you know, upbringing. And then, and then day to day had to go to like Stepford Wife school. Right, so it was right, like really right. the worst of both worlds. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. I think that's with your kids, Matthew, is like, we've talked a lot, about, lot, a lot about this. For me growing up, being teased, and, and I grew up in San Francisco, you know, but I still teased, and even teased in my own home, what that did for me was I lived in my imagination all the time. Mm -hmm. In yeah. my imagination, there was always a musical. It was I was always singing, thinking about singing the rain, or that's entertainment, or like I lived in my imagination. Like I remember like getting, and I was that kid of like, it's obvious, you know, but I remember we got like, we went to see the ice capades or something, and I... I would furtively look at the the souvenir program to look yeah. at the costumes and everything because some part of me knew that it was it was too it would be, it would have been too embarrassing and too bald to be looking at look at the spangled dress. <laughs> <laughs> I like that you talked like Snagglepuss. <laughs> yeah, totally, yeah. My thing uh, growing up when I was really starting to kind of you know come to terms with my own sexuality is like I kind of emotionally detached that that was my coping strategy so mm -hmm. I really kind of separated and I think okay. that was the thing that helped me navigate you know school and, and everything else like that but what what I also inevitably realized was how much it fucked up my ability to get to know my own heart and the things that I wanted to do and you know more creatively or professionally or anything like that so that was, that's it detachment yeah so it's been my own journey to have to reattach you know and to be able to kind of rediscover that part of it so so how do we go from tortured kid to um, uh, to drag? I mean, how does how does that journey coalesce? Yeah, you know, I mean, people sort of ask me when I started drag a lot, and my answer is never, always. You know, it's because, like I said, I sort of always had this in me, and I love. I was really drawn to these things. I mean, my very straight father was actually upset. Like his favorite singer is Barbara Streisand. We watched a lot of musicals growing <laughs> oh, up, right? So oh, I nice. had that, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, but, you know, I was always kind of, you know, I would play make-believe and it was always a, a towel as a dress. It was always, yeah. you know, that. And as soon as I was um, old enough to, like, walk into a drugstore and steal makeup, I started doing that. <laughs> and I would, like, put on a face by myself alone in my bathroom. Yeah. And then I would wash the whole thing off before I left. Oh, wow. Like, I was, you know, it was just... And when I found drag... It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to start doing drag. It was, oh, there's a container for what I already am. Uh, there's wow. something oh. out there that is like these people are like me. And this was pre-drag race. So this is when you had to love drag so much that you did it yeah. in spite of the fact that it was – 
you were, I mean, now we think of drag queens as like rich, famous, popular. That's yeah, no, it's not. A shit yeah. Gig. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have to, I have to tell you, so I've uh, recently started working with um, kind of more queer youth and um, with some clients too, some kind of young, you know, kind of boy clients as identified currently um, has been really experimenting with a lot of makeup. Um, and has just been this, this thing that's kind of like opened him up that much more. And he's like, really kind of like stepping into just more of like his own confidence. And that's been incredible to see it that specific way, kind of how you're describing for you. Yeah. You know, I think it's a way to sort of like seize control. Right. I mean, like, especially yeah. I was also a very heavy kid. So I was teased for my appearance constantly. It mm -hmm. was like the double whammy of fat and gay. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. um, and you know, I just knew that in other people's eyes, I was undesirable. I was less than I was all these things. And so starting to play mm. with makeup, I mean, it's like a very physical, tactile, tangible way of yeah. taking control. Yeah. Of who you are. Yeah. 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 I always feel like when I hear about everybody's drag journey, it's kind of like a, it's like a superhero origin story. Mm. And the drag persona is almost there as a, a counterbalance. It, it saves the person who's doing it. And especially in your case, the, the persona of Dela is somebody who's so positive and is just wants everything to be magical. It seems to be like she's a direct counterbalance to the sadness that you grew up with and have uh. been living with for so long. It's kind of like she's there to kind of even out the scales. You know, it's interesting because she's become kind of both where she is um, she's so positive. It really helps me. I mean, one thing is right. Like, I mean, certainly like there's a lot of uh, sort of uh, mental health AA conversations about acts of service and how that yeah. really, right. Like, uh -huh. I mean, one thing is Dela has to smile for other people. So whether or not I'm in the mood <laughs> when it's time for me to do my job, yeah. I have to turn that on and it is impossible to like exude that much positive energy and not feel it. Right. So oh. it's like it's it's a loop like you help other people feel that way. That helps you feel that way. It's it really is a cycle. But then at the same time, there's another side of Dela that's actually sort of a critique, you know, and I think you really see that in the, the Christmas show, this kind yeah. of like blind optimism without yeah, we call, like we call, we call it a toxic positivity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I've always I've used her that way for a long time where she's sort of um, uh, positive to a point of ignorance. Like she doesn't want right. to look at what's negative. Right. And, and, and she kind of resets at the top of every show because I always have her learn similar lessons where it's just right. like yeah. nuanced thinking is actually what's necessary for real happiness. You know, yeah. by the way, I, I love how you're talking about it as with this relationship with Dela, right. And about kind of like how you're navigating things because that's truly how it is for for everybody, anybody can identify with this, this kind of, you know, back and forth, this kind of like dialogue that happens inside. And it's how we go about nurturing that relationship between these sides that really matters. So it sounds like when you're talking about Dela, you know, this kind of like maybe at one point more like a toxic positivity thing, but that she's evolving at the same time too. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I find new ways of sort of, I mean, she just gets richer and more complex, right? Yeah. Like it's just like the longer I, I know her, the longer I'm in relationship with her, yeah. um, the more I learn about what she's capable of. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, you she's- you through it on the special. If oh, you haven't yeah. seen the special, um, and I and I highly recommend that you do. It, it doesn't have to be Christmas time for you to watch it. Dela is is hell bent on having the most fantastic holiday, and Jinx 
uh, Monsoon is not interested. <laughs> <laughs> so you kind of um, you kind of terrorize her with Christmas for for the majority of the program until you arrive at your own understanding. And Jinx arrives at her own understanding of Ma- her experiences of the holiday aren't unique to her, are unique to her. And your experience of holiday is unique to you and you can't thrust it upon each other. And the finale, my favorite, favorite song and the the, the music, it's all original music, which I couldn't believe. (laughs) um, uh, Written by Major Scales and you and Jinx. and Yes, and amazing uh, music producer, Keith Harrison. Yeah, yeah, it has a whole Judy Garland, let's put on a show thing. Um, Off camera, I want to know how much it cost. Uh, but Let's put it this way. I'm not buying a house anytime soon. <laughs> the finale is a song called Everyone is Traumatized by Christmas. And it's this really catchy song. And it's really all about like everybody's traumatized by trying to make things a certain way mm. this time of year. And there was a New York Times article about uh, Charles Schultz and what he did with the Peanuts Christmas special, which had never been done before. Children talking about sadness. Hmm. Yeah about how uh, the holiday isn't, I'm not, the holiday's happening, but I'm not feeling whatever it is I'm supposed to be feeling. Mm-hmm. I went that deep. That just made my arm stand, stand I went up. deep. Yeah. I went deep with it. I love that. No, I mean, I love that because that is what it's, a, I mean, it's, um, you know, it's this thing where, I mean, Dela is, right, she's, like, I, I try to make it entertaining, but it's like, you know, I, hopefully you don't notice how much it's work, me working through my therapy, right? It's uh-huh. because Dela is, um, she's this, in that film, she's a big part of me, which is this type A, seizing control, needing everything to be perfect, and mm-hmm. needing it to look the way it's supposed to look. And, you know, I mean, she's the super heightened version of that that Mm -hmm. then has to realize that like that is not making you feel better trying to make it this thing is not making you happy and the only way to do it you know and jinx and her are coming at it from sort of opposite ends and i also actually weave some of my own story in that like that's the only time i've ever talked about dela being from connecticut having this Mm. kind of stuffy upbringing with a lot of expectations very waspy you know yeah um which is what my my deep childhood was like um but uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of the to me also like what I love about drag, right? It's that thing of um, you're not meeting anyone's expectations. I mean, maybe now you are. But like once upon a time, again, before drag was super popular, right. it's like you are self-creating and you're self-curating mm-hmm. and um, and you're inherently kind of casting off what is expected of you. But um, but yeah, you know, I, I think I really always want to talk about that, um, that trauma specifically around the holidays because I hated Christmas for yeah. so many years mm-hmm. and it's really about reclamation. Yeah. Can you, can, can you tell us a little bit more about that, especially kind of like earlier on in your life? What was it, whether it was the holidays or maybe just in general, obviously getting bullied and all that shit is going to create a lot of emotional turmoil. So can you just tell us a little bit about what that was like for the younger you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, you know, the the other sections, of course, you know, every time we tell a story, we tell parts of the story. Yeah. So another part of my childhood story was that um, 
I had this big New Englandy extended family, like the kind of sort of archetypical family who's like obsessed with like talking about their genealogy and like who came from the Mayflower. <laughs> oh, okay, like that. totally. And, um, so like it's Yardley like, Smith, she was like a she was like a, a Pilgrim family in her family. My <laughs> oh my god, my grandmother on my mother's side was one of the. She belonged to a like society called Daughters of the Mayflower, oh my and god. the way my mom found out she was a adopted was that my grandmother invited her sister to join Daughters of the Mayflower and my mother was like well why can't and this is you know like a preteen or something it's like uh -huh. well, why can't I come and her mother said well you're adopted and went out the door to her meeting oh um, wow so it's very right like this Whoa. is my upbringing oh wow okay. it didn't even occur to her to like lie or, nope. <laughs> or soften it or find a more organic you're adopted yeah, okay. anyway I gotta go bye yeah <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, so we had these big kind of performative family holidays where it was all the aunts and uncles and grandparents and cousins and everyone would get together and everyone would act like they enjoyed each other's company. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was too many presents and it was carols around the tree and it was like snowy New England and it was so picturesque. And I just would sit around and have that like, why doesn't this feel good thing? Oh, yeah. You know, the, yeah. it's the peanuts thing. It's like, why yeah. aren't we this this looks like I should feel a certain way. Right, yeah. right. But it added to that sense of isolation. You know, it's like sometimes having a ton of people around you who are performing connectivity yeah. and not really doing it makes right. you really feel a lot more alone. And that was true for me. Yeah, were you, was it like depression? Were you feeling really down, low, depressed, that kind of thing? Oh, deeply. I mean, my my entire, uh, I was I was deep in the throes of depression as yeah. a kid. You know, I had, I, I, I never attempted uh, suicide. I'm just going straight there. But yes, I did, um, but I did think show. about it a lot, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I mean, when I think of my adolescent years, I just, I cried constantly. And I'm talking like deep sob, snotty crying yeah. alone every yeah. night, which yeah. is exhausting. I mean, that's yeah. an exhausting thing to to put your mind and body through. Oh, Physiologically, sure. you are kind of shooting a lot of stuff, a, a lot of chemicals are shooting off in your body yes. that are, ugh. And the thing is about like, we talk about this on the show too, is that in your adolescent time, it's tunnel vision. You yep. really believe that now is forever. Yes. Mm -hmm. That just because I feel this way now, this is the way it's always going to be. Yeah. One message that we get out to want to get out that I want to get out personally to anybody in adolescence is that it's not forever. This yeah. is, this is it's, now is not forever. Yeah. yeah. And it's hard to, especially as a young person, you don't have a whole lot of context to draw from. So you don't really know that. And so the severity and the intensity of what we feel can be a lot. Um, Dale, I'm curious because I know that, uh, you know, you were kind of speaking to Stephanie, our, our producer kind of before this and that you were mentioning that it really wasn't just depression, but also at one point you had been given this bipolar disorder. So um, a bit of both yeah. sides. So, um, you know, through those years, I was um, obviously dealing with all of this. I was, my dad put me into therapy as soon as my mom died. So I was seeing a, a therapist from a very young age and I was put on uh, Prozac very early. Wow. Um, and I was on... Right, which, uh, you know, it's thinking back on it. I'm like, I don't even quite know how to think about all, about all that because I do know that people were kind of just trying to keep me from killing myself. And yeah. right. at the same time, yeah. Yeah. 
obviously it's like there's there's a certain message that you get, especially as a kid, that mm-hmm. your sadness isn't justified. And when yeah. you're going through something like that, yes. it's like how do you fully – and it's not that medication – I mean I'll get into the medication thing now because I have a very good relationship with medication now. Oh. But, um, but there is a thing where it's like if you give a kid a pill – you have to be very careful. You're not telling that kid that there isn't fully a good reason for what they're feeling oh, other than yes. there's something wrong with their brain. Yes. Yes. You know? Yes. Thank so, you, by the way, thank thank you. I just want to make a note. Thank you for saying all of that specifically the way that you just said that, because I think that's so important. And I think it's a thing that we can easily overlook too, especially any anything, even putting a child in therapy or giving medication or anything unless you are super fucking clear about what it is and how it's healthy and how it's good for everybody. And Mm -hmm. these kinds of things, Mm -hmm. children are left wondering, why do I have to do this thing? What's broken about me? What's adults are left wondering that I mean, I I wasn't on meds for years because I felt like that's, that would mean I can't take care of myself. Mental health stigma for sure. Yeah. That would mean I can't take care of myself. So where you are, where are you, now where's where's your default position now mentally do you think yeah so you know i was uh i was kind of put on these antidepressants for many 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 years and then i kind of just uh in my early 20s was and all of these different none of them worked you know it was i I had a million side effects but never felt better Mm. and in my 20s i was just like this isn't working i'm not gonna do it anymore and i just Mm -hmm. got off meds and i and i kept doing talk therapy for a long time and i i have to say like i can not i mean i encourage constantly everyone to do sure. that it's yeah. helped me so much what's wrong with that what, what's that a whole hour that's about me oh my god <laughs> right yes totally the, it's Actual like a, right like if you like if you're auditioning and can't get a gig then get into therapy it's like <laughs> as good as an audience yeah. um but uh yeah no so it was uh so after many years of talk therapy it started to come up a lot that um my moods were cyclic and that I would have these very productive periods where I was like making a lot of art and taking, you know, kicking ass and taking names. And then I would just have these long periods of time that were those like sobby, can't get out of bed, snotty times, you know? And that was true for many, many years. And I kept talking about it as depression and it started to come up that maybe that's not what was going on with me. And Mm -hmm. I avoided letting any therapist really say that to me. Do you think it's because because, of the cyclical nature that they thought this wasn't, that it was, it could be clocked by seasons. It could be be clocked by months or. Yeah. It was this kind of big up and down. And I had a few people in my life who had been diagnosed with bipolar and I watched them struggle with getting specifically on lithium, which, um, you know, is, is tough. And I saw people just go through big periods of, um, uh, just, you know, being sort of like tired and lethargic and totally. And I didn't want that. I didn't want to go through it. And so I really pushed it off and it was many, many years later, long story, a little bit less long. Um, It was many (laughs) years later that uh, I finally sort of was like, I can't handle this anymore. And I allowed my therapist to say like, I think there may be something else going on. And I think the reason antidepressants didn't work for you is because that's not what's going on. And 
and I was diagnosed with cyclothymia, and I started uh, taking a medicine uh, called lamotrigine, which I'm still on, mm-hmm. and um, and rather than uh, an antidepressant that is to regulate those cyclic moods and specifically mm-hmm. to put a bottom on the depression. Because yeah. one yeah. reason I was also nervous was because my manic moments mm-hmm. were never the kind of mania where you like lose lucidity. They were just super productive. And I was like, oh, if I lose that, right. Yeah. Right. how am I an artist? Right. Right. You know? right. right. Yes. So wait, wait, quickly, because I, I, we could talk forever, but I can see the clock ticking. Quickly walk us through what cyclothymia is. Because yeah, I, so, I, um, I, th- I don't think everybody's familiar with that term. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we know a lot about like bipolar one and bipolar two, right? And the way that they're um, sort of like have the the mania and depression excess. And and uh, and cyclothymia is is related, right? So mm-hmm. it's, it's this cyclic kind of... Uh, uh, mood disorder and i hate to use that word because obviously that has a lot with it but um but it's you know this is the way my mind works mm-hmm. is that it takes me into these very high places and these very low places and yeah. um and you know speaking of the way that kids feel that kind of sense of globalization where how you feel in the moment is how you think you have always felt and always will feel right. oftentimes my moods come with that now i've yeah. learned to navigate that really well and i don't think that way anymore cuz i can yeah. i can see my way out of it but um but, you know, going on this medication, I have to say, almost instantly, I was no longer immobilized oh. by my sadness. And this yeah. is after years of going on medications to try to do that and being unable to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me ask you. So, you know, being able to really kind of sort through a lot of this in your own journey with mental health and therapy, um, you know, has been able to help you destigmatize a lot of it, including medication. And that's been something on a very physiological level, neurologically mm-hmm. has been helpful for you. And mm-hmm. what we've also been talking about too, is kind of like the, the larger theme here is about, you know, reframing, like, yes. you know, being able to rewrite those stories, which it sounds like you're kind of alluding to as well. So can you tell us about that part of it for you? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that so much of my desire to push off a diagnosis to not take medication was about that, like, well, that means something is inherently wrong with me thing, right? And it's Mm. the negative, the negative, the negative. And what I have really sort of come around to in a different kind of way is this is an aspect of who I am. It is something unique about the way my brain functions and Mm -hmm. it is a thing that I have to navigate. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a flip side of it, right? Like in that way that I was like, oh, but my creativity, I don't want to lose it. I mean, honestly, that is the flip side of this coin. And we see it all the time when we look at artists and creatives that there is oftentimes a struggle with really negative thinking on the other side of this kind of like – Art creativity yeah. that people yes. not everyone yeah. has access to. Yeah. You know, and so I have this burden and this blessing. Yeah. And I don't need to view them as like, oh God, why have I been saddled with this mm-hmm. awful thing? What's wrong with me? But rather, like, I have a huge range of who I am. Like yes. I have higher ups, I have downer downs, and um, and that is not a negative it's it's it includes a lot of what's beautiful about me and that I love about myself and that other people love about me and when you do that when you embrace that 
it just gets easier. The yeah. totally. don't yeah. hurt. Yeah. They yes. don't hurt as badly. Yeah. yeah. I think it's I, something it's something that it's something that I would call like the cost of admission, right? It's the cost of admission, the 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 pain and even suffering at times that can come from staying open, keeping ourselves m- most vulnerably, you know, available is really difficult. And there's a lot of shit that we trip up over and struggle with, yet it also is the birthplace of innovation and creativity and all the fucking magic and the ways that we can connect with other people. Right. But being able to frame it as, you know, cost of admission, because I still want to go to the amusement park. You know, I, you know my therapist, I, I was seeing when I, when I was a new parent, I was always about, I'd never been in that position before. I'd never been, you know, responsible. And I was, I felt like I was always kind of like, putting on the parent face. You know, yeah. <laughs> like this and <laughs> time to dance for grandma. Right. And uh, my therapist said, your job isn't to be Betty Crocker. Yeah. Your your job is to model emotional authenticity. Yeah. To yeah. show that people have boundaries, yeah. to show that people have good days, to show how people have bad days. But, you know, and the difference is, is that if I have a bad day with my kid, I own it. And I apologize, but um, hearing you talk about your your emotions and meds, it, that was my thing too. Is that I couldn't, I, I went on meds because I my despair was becoming normal. Mm-hmm. That I just knew that at a certain time of day I was going to feel the deepest deepest despair. Mm. And now the difference between me and before meds and me now is like I can feel sadness. I don't feel despair. Or if I feel despair, it's just kind of like oh hi. I can have a cup of coffee with you and then move on. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, that's, that's made everything more manageable. Yes. That's the biggest thing is like, you know, when you let go of that idea that it's going to last forever it, mm-hmm. and, and, and you stop the judgment around it. Right. It's like, how do you just observe how you, how you feel right in this moment and just sort of let yourself move, move through it. Cause it's that resistance. It's that kicking yes. and screaming yes. against it yes. that makes it go on and on and on. You just yeah. have to be like, here you are. I'm familiar with you. Like, and and it's like a gentleness and it's an embracing. It's like, uh, wow, you know, you, it's that it's that same way we talked about Dela. It's stepping outside of yourself a little bit and being like, I'm going to be gentle with you and kind to you in the way that I would be to a friend who is experiencing right. this. Yeah, you know, totally. It's the resistance. It's it's the resistance to it. I think that's such a that's such a uh, kind of a good thing to be mindful of because it's like you know, um, it's just a law of nature. If you're going to push on something, it's going to push back in the same amount too. So you're going to feel the intensity of that. Yeah. Yeah. We always end the show with a, a hot message, but your whole show has been a hot message. It has been a hot <laughs> so message. Somebody to somebody who's experienced kind of the level of sadness or the level of, um, yeah, sadness that you have. What, what would be your hot message to that? You know, I think it's just like there's, you're not alone. Mm-hmm. There is absolutely nothing wrong with you. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, um, for me, a lot of the things that I've beat myself up for most in my life are I- inextricably linked to the things that I value about myself and that are that I'm valued for. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, and I I think that if people talk about these things more, and I so appreciate that you guys do this podcast yeah. because it's that destigmatization that right. um you know i mean it was me hearing artists i respect yeah. talk about their struggles yes. that made me realize there some of my favorite creatives yeah. have this struggle yeah. and it made me feel more like i had a power right yeah. like it's 
a lot of what we think about as our failings are actually our superpowers. Yes. Oh, I love that. Yeah, Where assets become liabilities. Where liabilities become assets. That's what I meant to say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, where can people find you on your socials? Uh, I am Ben DeLaCreme across platforms, B-E-N-D-E-L-A-C-R-E-M-E. And I'm. you can find me uh, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook, if anybody still uses Facebook. Yeah. I'm She's still terminally, de- <laughs> terminally delightful. You yes. have to watch the Jinx and Della special. I'm so impressed with you as a director. Just putting that together, it was like, because um, my husband's a producer, so we were watching the show from producer directorial things going, all right, how much did that cost? How did you get that? All right, it, it's so good, and um, we watch it on a loop. It's it's really, really wonderful. What else did I want to tell you? Uh, that's it. I'll have to text you, because I've forgotten. But um, it's watch the special. It doesn't have to be Christmas time to watch it. It's universal, and you're, you're just great on it. You're so Thank talented. You. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for being on the show today. Yes, thank you, please. It's been a pleasure. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Bye, you guys. Bye, Della. Wow. You know, it's kind of like, I feel like the more personal the show gets, the better. Yes, I love it. This you know? is the shit. Like, this is the stuff that we should be normalizing and the conversations yeah. that we should be having and to know Nobody that Nobody okay. loves me. <laughs> Nobody loves me. <laughs> Nobody loves me. <laughs> Drunken on the couch. Drunken on the couch. Is that's terrible? And, you know, poor guy. Poor poor. <laughs> Where I gave I had to I had to give him a very vigorous shoulder massage. <laughs> um uh what's your hot message of the day? Uh I think my hot message is a classic, the one I've said before, which is it's okay to not be okay. Mm-hmm. All our emotions are fine, everything is all right, and lean into it and get curious instead of judgmental. Right. My, my same thing, you're not a bad person for needing help. Yeah. Everybody, that's part of the human experience. Cost of admission. Some point you're going to need help. And I think that um, lose the shame out of needing help, get help. It's self-care. When he when when she said, this is how my brain works. You know, that that to me was like that took all judgment out of it. Yeah. And I think too often we look at mental health like if, if, if you had cancer. And yeah, you wouldn't stop. You wouldn't keep from going to a doctor because you were embarrassed. Totally. When, yeah. What I always kind of tell myself and to clients and everybody else is that when you're going through shit and you're feeling shit, just trust that it makes sense somehow, even if you don't have the answers and just yeah. start with the question of like, what is this? What could this be? Even just asking, even if you don't come up with a definitive answer to it, even just the questioning opens up a curiosity and destigmatizes all the shit around it and normalizes it for us. And that sets us off on a very different path. We're never going to run out of questions, Matthew. Never. Just, always. My next question is, where can people find you on social? <laughs> Good segue. It's uh, at MJ Dempsey site for Instagram and Twitter and Matthew J. Dempsey Psychotherapy on Facebook. I'm Alec Mappa on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. You can also find us both at Stage 29 Podcasts. DM us. We want to hear from you. We want to hear uh, what you're going through and we'll talk about it on the show. Yeah. Um, don't forget to download and subscribe unless you do that. There's very little point in us being here. We're so thankful that you show up week after week. Tune in next week for more hot mess fun. Bye, guys. This podcast has been produced by Stage 29 Productions for entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast does not constitute medical or professional advice, do not reflect the opinions of this company, any of its parent companies, affiliates, subsidiaries, promotional sponsors, or advertising agencies. 
The views expressed by the hosts and guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. For more information, please go to stage29.tv.